A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 252. The Sack of Thessalonica. Last time, we watched on as Andronicus Komnenos fell on Manuel's family like a lion, killing his children, his wife, and his nephew. It's uh, an appropriate analogy, since in the wild, when a male lion takes over a new pride, he usually kills all the cubs he finds, ensuring that only his progeny will survive. Unfortunately, Andronicus wasn't taking over a small pride. It was a huge empire that required careful management. As you know, he didn't stop with Manuel's family. He killed, blinded, or exiled a large number of talented men and terrified the rest into silence. This reign of terror would do huge damage to the fabric of Byzantium, as we will see today. In the end, though, Roman regimes built on fear tend not to last, and this will be no exception. Having crushed opposition to his rule at the capital, Andronicus gathered an army in early 1184 and headed for Nicaea. As I mentioned last time, Nicaea had become the centre of Anatolian resistance to Andronicus's rule. A group of Comnenian nobles had gathered there, hoping to overthrow the new regime. Amongst them was the man who would eventually replace Andronicus, Isaac Angelos. As you know, Nicaea's defences were formidable, and Andronicus's men struggled to break through. In order to turn up the heat on the defenders, the emperor sent for Isaac's mother, Euphrosine. She was dragged from Constantinople to Nicaea, and then tied to the top of a battering ram. Andronicus's theory was that the rebels wouldn't be able to destroy the ram without hurting their leader's mother, which is pretty much supervillain territory. The garrison of Nicaea managed to rescue her and destroy the ram, but eventually the city ran out of food and surrendered to Andronicus. The rebel leaders begged for mercy, and since they'd opened the gates voluntarily, Andronicus felt honour bound not to murder Isaac and his co-conspirators. They were packed off to Constantinople to live very quiet lives instead. The garrison were not so lucky. A number of Turkic men had been hired to bolster their numbers, and the Vasilefs had them rounded up and impaled outside the walls. The army marched on to the smaller city of Prusa, which refused to open its gates. Lacking Nicaea's walls, though, the city soon fell, and Andronicus's troops sacked it. The town's leaders were either hung or impaled. Similar scenes followed at Lopadion, 
where Coniates said that Andronicus refused to allow the men he hung to be buried. They swayed in the wind like scarecrows suspended in a garden of cucumbers. These ruthless punishments had their intended effect, and Anatolian resistance to the new regime ended. Andronicus returned home. As I hinted at in our introduction, though, ruling through fear is a double-edged sword. You cow those close to you, but you encourage those further away not to trust you. Medieval states depended on good relationships between the ruler and his provincial governors. Each had to believe that the other would safeguard their interests. If not, things can go wrong very quickly. Roman control of Cilicia had always been tenuous during Manuel's reign, and soon after his death the local Armenians ejected the few imperial garrisons left standing and imprisoned the governor. This was Isaac Ducas Komnenos, the grandson of Manuel's brother Isaac. The Armenians kept Isaac under comfortable house arrest until a suitable ransom could be paid. After some wrangling, Andronicus managed to gather enough money to free him, and Isaac sailed for Cyprus. But suspecting that Andronicus was not bringing him home for a family cuddle, Isaac set himself up on Cyprus. He forged documents to convince the locals he was their new governor, and then eventually had himself declared emperor. Andronicus, as you can imagine, was furious, particularly because of Isaac's claim on the imperial title. The Vasilev suspected that if Isaac sailed for Constantinople, he would be welcomed by many as a liberator. As had become customary, Andronicus rounded up Isaac's relatives and imprisoned them. They had no connection to Isaac's actions, but the emperor didn't care about that. Andronicus felt the need to constantly justify his actions to the people of Constantinople. As you'll recall from last week, he encouraged them to attack the Italian merchants, then to attack the empress and patriarch, then to agitate for his elevation to the imperial office. Now he held a show trial for two of Isaac's male relatives. Accusations were hurled at them, followed by stones. The crowd gladly joined in pelting the two men until they were half dead. They were then impaled in public, a sight which, as you can imagine, sickened many ordinary people. Across that summer of 1184, more people were accused of treason and publicly executed in cruel ways. Coniates describes the crowd slowly turning against the emperor as they felt more and more pity for those being punished. Our historian, Nikitas Coniates, repeatedly dismisses the common people as being unworthy of historical attention. But they were actually playing an increasingly important role in the politics of the capital. Though I frequently describe them as the mob, they were not always a disorganised rabble. Our other historical source, the Bishop of Thessalonica, details how Andronicus got into bed with various populist leaders. We can assume that these were the heads of various guilds, or rich local businessmen, who essentially began to operate a bit like organised crime bosses. Constantinople was a vast city, whose wealth and population had actually increased since the Battle of Manzikert. As power and money became more centralised, these local bigwigs had begun to wield real power. 
their ability to mobilise hundreds of ordinary citizens at a moment's notice was a real threat to those at the top. The attacks on the Italian merchants, which we discussed last week, may have been organised by these figures, and Andronicus now invited them to become his clients, using them as an alternative source of power, since he could hardly trust the aristocrats who he was tormenting. Though these men had so far supported the emperor in his vicious power grab, they too had clients to placate. Their guild members and employees were the people, and if the people turned against Andronicus, then the bosses might think twice before standing in their way. In order to avoid being stoned or impaled, many Comnenian men fled the empire, seeking refuge at the courts of Byzantium's enemies. Some went to Utremir, others to Iconium, or to seek out Frederick Barbarossa, all asking for help in overthrowing Andronicus. The most fateful journey was that of Manuel's cupbearer, a young man named, inevitably, Alexius Komnenos, possibly a great-nephew of Manuel's. He made his way to the court of William II of Sicily. The Normans hardly needed an invitation to attack Byzantium, their last assault during the Second Crusade had done tremendous damage and had, essentially, driven Manuel's foreign policy for the rest of his reign. Manuel had made two foolish decisions which now contributed to the unfolding disaster. First, he defended William II by offering his daughter's hand in marriage, only to then withdraw her when a better offer materialised. Then he doubled down on the danger when he arrested all the Venetians resident in Byzantium. With one stroke, he'd shattered relations with the one power that could block the Norman fleet from crossing the Adriatic. Those decisions in concert were the most damaging part of Manuel's legacy. With Byzantium wide open to attack and Manuel's cupbearer providing the necessary intel, William only needed a pretext to present to the rest of the Latin world and he could get moving. It didn't take the king long to find a Byzantine peasant with a resemblance to the dead Alexius II, Manuel's son. Now the Normans could claim to be fighting on behalf of the rightful ruler of Constantinople. It was the same excuse that Robert Giscard had used back in 1081. In fact, William followed the same route laid out by Giscard and Bohemond before him. He gathered a huge fleet and sailed for the strategic island of Corcyra, which fell swiftly. Then he moved on to blockade the port city of Dyrrhachium. There was no resistance from the Byzantine fleet, which was not in great shape since the departure of the Italian merchants. The Normans, by contrast, had expanded their numbers by inviting various pirate ships to join them. They were unpaid, but were guaranteed a share in any plunder taken. Dyrrhachium did not resist for long. Andronicus's terrorization of the aristocracy had undermined the empire's defences. The local general, John Vranas, did not have enough men to hold out against the invasion, but Coniates says that he was afraid to admit that to Andronicus, since he would likely be punished for his failure. He put up what resistance he could, but the Normans quickly overran his position and took the city. This should have prompted a swift response from Andronicus, but he was almost stagily lethargic, 
afraid perhaps that news of a Norman invasion would prompt a backlash against him. So he downplayed the bad news in public, claiming that he would easily defeat the Sicilians and therefore it wasn't worth worrying about. He did order troops to muster across the Balkans, but he didn't appoint a single commander to lead them, again perhaps for fear that this man would turn the army on Constantinople. So five different generals led five different outfits slowly towards Thessalonica, none sure of what they were supposed to do next. The Normans had no such problems. Delighted by the speed of their conquests, they divided their forces and headed straight for Thessalonica. The army marched overland from Dyrrhachium, while the fleet sailed around the Aegean. The empire's second city was a natural target for attack, and if they could capture it, the dream of a Norman Balkan empire would be closer to reality. As I mentioned last week, we have a first-hand account of what followed from Ephstathios, the Archbishop of Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki. Ephstathios, to his credit, did not abandon the city in its hour of need, which was more than an empty gesture. Along with the governor, the bishop was the most prominent person in the city. He could well have argued that a siege was no place for a man of his vocation, and escaped with the thousands of others who fled at news of the Norman approach. By staying, Ephstathios encouraged others to stay put and to fight for their homes. The Archbishop gives us a blow-by-blow account of how the Normans surrounded and eventually captured the city after an 18-day siege. Ephstathios lays the blame for this disaster squarely at the feet of two men, Andronicus, obviously, and the city's governor, David Komnenos. Ephstathios knew David well and quickly realised the game he was playing. You see, David was more scared of Andronicus than he was of the Normans. He lived in fear of being dragged from his bed at night by the emperor's agents and having his eyes gouged out, as had happened to many of his relatives. Given the perfidious nature of Andronicus's regime, success was no guarantee of safety. David knew that if he saw off the Normans, he might be killed for seeming like a threat to the Vasilevs, or he might be blamed for some imaginary failure, or be imprisoned because a distant relative had looked at Andronicus the wrong way. If Stathios came to believe that David's goal was to perform well enough for Andronicus to leave him in charge, but then to fall safely into Norman custody, believing that he was better off as their prisoner than as Andronicus's subordinate. Whether Evstathios understood David's reasoning precisely, we don't know, but he certainly gives plenty of evidence for the governor's neglectful defence of the city. He accuses him of refusing to stockpile enough supplies, of hindering the defenders from making sorties, and failing to encourage the troops he commanded. He even accuses David of writing to Andronicus to assure him that all was well, desperate to stop the emperor from sending a new governor to replace him. The Norman army arrived on the 6th of August and set up camp. The navy followed nine days later. Though David armed his men and provided some supplies, he did the bare minimum to avoid accusations of treachery. The Normans undermined the city's eastern walls while their siege engines peppered the battlements above. 
As soon as a section of the walls came down, David Komnenos abandoned his men and fled to the enemy camp to surrender. The Sicilian army then thoroughly sacked the city, emptying every church and every home in the search for treasure. According to Eustathios, at least 7,000 Romans and allies were killed. The rest were starved, tormented or raped by their captors. This was a tragedy for Byzantium on multiple levels. Beyond just the human suffering and the advance of Norman power, the blow to Roman prestige would begin the process that would unravel the empire's power, as we'll see next week. The sack of the empire's second city was also a dark precursor to the sack of its first. As we'll see when Constantinople falls, the same pattern of events will present itself. A Komnenian prince seeking help from the West, a disinterested defence, a ruler seeking sanctuary rather than going down with the ship, a great city falling to an army that should never have been able to take it. Andronicus was shocked at the news and began to make preparations to defend his capital. It was assumed correctly that the Normans would march on Constantinople as soon as they could. But Andronicus was increasingly isolated from his people. He spent much of his time in his suburban palaces, dealing with the business of government, yes, but also drawing up lists of nobles he wanted to execute and hosting orgies. It was the second of those three occupations that was to usher in his downfall. Andronicus didn't seem to need much of an excuse to murder more of his relatives, but it was a fair enough assumption that if the Normans reached the land walls, the people would turn on him. An emperor who allowed the capital to be besieged was a failure, after all, and naturally the people would elevate one of the remaining Komnenian nobles in his place. Logically then, thought the by now paranoid Andronicus, I better eliminate those nobles before that happens. One of the leading men still standing was Isaac Angelos, one of the rebels he'd captured at Nicaea, and a great-grandson of the Alexius Komnenos. Andronicus ordered his lieutenant Stephen to arrest him. Stephen and his attendants arrived at Angelos's house and made their presence known. Isaac had been living in fear for the past year, and probably suspected that this day was coming. He decided to go down swinging and crept into the stables while Stephen yelled at his household from the courtyard. Isaac came bursting out on horseback and with one blow of his sword sliced through Stephen's brain. Everyone was staggered by this twist and Stephen's henchmen fled before they too got run through. Isaac, adrenaline flowing, fled for his life and there was only one place to go, the Ahia Sophia. As he raced through the streets and public squares, Isaac shouted to the people what he'd done. Holding aloft his blood-stained sword, he told people that he'd killed the hated Stephen and was now going to beg the patriarch for sanctuary. This dramatic spectacle drew a big crowd. People ran through the streets to discover what was happening and were very sympathetic to Isaac's cause. They had grown tired of Andronicus's cruelty and here he was about to cut down another innocent member of his own family. The Ahia Sophia filled with people, and when no response came from Andronicus's agents, a movement began. People declared their intention to stay in the church all night to protect the Angelos family. Isaac's kin 
knowing what happened to relatives of traitors, had all come to join him. Presumably, the mob bosses now switched horses, recognising that the cruelty of Andronicus was too unpalatable to support any longer. Still, no response came from Andronicus, because he was across the Bosphorus at one of his suburban palaces. Roused to action the next day, he sailed for the palace, but this delay had supercharged the mob. They woke up to find no Imperial guards waiting outside, and so they raced home and armed themselves. Then they smashed open the doors of the prisons, freeing dozens of Andronicus's enemies. The mood had changed decisively. The people had gone from insisting on protecting Isaac to demanding that he be made emperor immediately. Apparently, a crown was suspended above the altar in the church, which was said to be the one worn by Constantine the Great. An agile member of the clergy pulled it down, and it was placed on Isaac's head. The patriarch, an ally of Andronicus, was dragged from his office to officially proclaim Isaac II as the new Roman emperor. It was around now that Andronicus's ship docked at the palace, and he was greeted with this astonishing news. When he got a sight of the crowd gathering outside, he quickly turned around and sailed away. On hearing that Andronicus had landed, the people excitedly surged towards the palace and broke in. As the people stripped the palace of all its movable wealth, Isaac Angelos was left rubbing his tired eyes. His family headed for the safety of the Vlachernai Palace, trying to come to terms with the fact that yesterday they'd been afraid for their lives, and today the empire was theirs. Soldiers were dispatched soon afterwards to bring Andronicus to justice. There's a real irony to this turn of events. As historian Paul Magdaleno points out, if Andronicus had simply focused on the Norman invasion and left the capital to be with his army, he probably would have survived. But, quote, the very diligence of his agents in hunting down potential conspirators led, quite unpredictably, to the spontaneous uprising which toppled him. There was no pre-existing campaign to make Isaac Angelos emperor. He was just Johnny on the spot when the crowds realised that they had a chance to rid themselves of the now-hated Andronicus. Of course, no one had more experience of being on the run than Andronicus Komnenos. Ditching his imperial regalia and adopting the clothes of a foreigner, he sailed quickly for the Black Sea. He put in at a port there and stocked up ready for a journey north towards the kingdom of the Rus. But the weather kept throwing his boat back to shore, and soon men from Constantinople caught up with him. They tied him up and tossed him in the back of a boat and sailed back towards the Bosphorus. With no other option, Andronicus began to sing a lament for his life, in the hopes of gaining sympathy from his captors. But as Coniates says, they'd seen no mercy from Andronicus for the people he'd executed, and so saw no need to extend any to the fallen emperor. A few days later, Andronicus was deposited on the floor of the court of Lachernae. The remaining Comnenian nobles surrounded him and kicked him and shouted at him. The wives of men he'd murdered were more than happy to punch him in the face. While imprisoned there, he had some of his hair and teeth pulled out and lost an eye and his right hand. Poetically, the beast who'd fallen on Manuel's family was tied up in chains 
designed to fetter caged lions. Isaac then released Andronicus to the people, allowing them to dispense justice the way their master had instructed them. Komnenos was paraded through the streets to the Hippodrome, where he was tied upside down and beaten to death. Coniates goes into gruesome detail about the verbal and physical abuse he suffered before the end came. Andronicus was 67 years old and had ruled the empire for three years, two of them as emperor. Andronicus Komnenos is the worst Byzantine emperor that we've encountered. Justin II made the deeply damaging decision to restart the war with Persia back in the 6th century, and Phocas then destroyed a legitimate dynasty in the early 7th. But Andronicus managed to do both, wiping out a legitimate line while plunging the empire into a desperate crisis. Worst of all, as far as I'm concerned, is that it was Andronicus's own family that he maimed. He had the option of ruling through his kin and being a unifying force. Instead, he turned on them, selfishly destroying all that his three predecessors had built. His fall feels like justice to us, but in a way, it might have been better if he'd clung to power. After all, we've seen other men murder their way to the top like Michael II or Basil I, but they had the good sense to survive and establish new dynasties to replace what they'd destroyed. Andronicus had two legitimate sons, either of whom could have reigned after him and restored some dignity to the Comnenian name. Instead, Andronicus bungled the whole thing. His cruelty and paranoia wiped out the Comnenian dynasty in one blaze of ignominy. Now his successor, Isaac Angelos, will face an endless stream of civil wars because he lacked what Andronicus had, legitimacy. For all his monstrosity, Andronicus was still Alexius Komnenos's grandson, and that conferred on him a primacy amongst his kin which no other man enjoyed. As I mentioned earlier, you can also see the seeds of the Fourth Crusade in Andronicus's reign. This was not lost on our historian, Nikitas Coniates. He looked back on this period with great sadness, and saw the fickleness of men and fate everywhere. As I said last week, the Protosebastos could easily have defeated Andronicus if he'd been more astute, while Andronicus would have survived if he were not so cruel. Coniates also points out that provincial administration during Andronicus's brief reign was much better than it had been under Manuel. Why? Because the wealthy were so scared of Andronicus that they didn't fleece their subjects as they usually did. Perversely, then, a reign of terror was the only thing that forced the Comnenian elites to behave as they should have done. So says Coniates, anyway. He even looks pitifully on the figure of Andronicus being tortured in the Hippodrome. Not that he felt the fallen emperor deserved much sympathy, but he was saddened to see the lack of respect which the imperial office commanded. Looking back, he saw in the swift rise and fall of Andronicus in the people's hearts a harbinger of the relentless troubles to come. Next time, Isaac Angelos, without any prior warning or preparation, 
will be thrust into the harshest spotlight of all. He must rally the forces of the Empire or watch it fall to the Normans.